This is On the Fence Physio, a podcast designed to, one, stimulate intellectual conversation around the nuances of gray topics in physical therapy, two, keep a group of physical therapists and physical therapy students entertained for 30 to 40 minutes, and three, fail to do either of those things. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, do not look here. Please seek out the opinion of a legitimate licensed medical provider. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome to another live episode of On the Fence Physio. I am your host, Andy Wiseman, joined by my lovely co-host, Matthew Owens, coming at you from day two. Day two. Combined Sections Meeting 2022. San Antonio. Round two. <laughs> Round two, day two. Yeah. Hot takes number two. It's a little warmer here today than it was yesterday. The hot takes are getting hotter. Getting hotter. <laughs> the sun was out. Um, but we have not been swimming in the rooftop pool yet. That might happen tomorrow night. Yep. It's getting warmer, but flights are still getting canceled. So we might be uh, talking about day four, day five of CSM if we can't make it home. Yeah, had a, a friend today, right? His flight got canceled, and he had to switch over, pay six hundred extra dollars in order to get home Sunday. Just wanted to be in Indiana that bad. Yep. <laughs> the Hoosier State, it's calling. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. Well, there's a full day of conferencing between uh, exhibit hall and educational sessions. And a little uh, social activity late into the evening. Um, any highlights from the day that you want to talk about first? Highlights from the day in general. I had a, all three educational sessions today uh, were good quality, I think, that I went to. I learned a lot. It was good. Had some, uh, it's basically a good old orthopedic knee day. <laughs> What I had, and it was great. I loved it. What's so hard about the knee? All it does is go bending straight. You know, that's what I used to think as well, Andy. Um, but then supposedly your brain has some impact on how your knee moves. Strength seems to be important in those activities. If you really knees. believe the brain is necessary to move the knee, how do you explain politicians? <laughs> uh, easy punching bag. Um, great. I'm glad you enjoyed. I went to two of the three sessions you went to, and I enjoyed them as well. Um, the one I started off the day with was uh, a fantastic session with one of my favorite topics, exercise dosage. Love talking about prescription of exercise. When does it matter how much exercise we do? And how we do it, and what intensity, duration, and frequency, because I really want it to matter. Um, and I have definitely come on this show and been on Twitter and have stood atop the mountaintop screaming, it doesn't matter when it comes to pain modulation. You can do whatever exercise you want. But there's actually been some more recent literature, um, and it was presented today by uh, Christina Gomez. And she presented some very interesting stuff on um, exercise doses and be very specific uh, for reducing several other things. Uh, the most interesting one was a uh, article on reducing cortisol levels 
and people with high anxiety. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And it's like, oh, you have to do it at 30 to 40% of their one rep max. You're looking for kind of that 15 to 20 rep range, you know, the higher volumes. Um, Lower intensity. Yeah. Using like kind of stuff. Yeah, moving slower too, like not doing a high velocity. And I was like, great, that sounds awesome. I live in, you know, the D.C. area where uh, <laughs> anxiety can be high. You think, you think that cortisol levels are high in D.C.? Yeah, oh, lots of anxiety. I'm like, this could be very helpful. You know, this is a immediately, this is the, I can use this on Monday with my first patient, you know, <laughs> kind of material. And we went on, um, I really appreciated uh, uh, Daniel Larson giving a presentation on neuroplasticity um, dosage and exercise. He talked about the Trident model. I think he coined the term and has gotten it published. But um, being able to create distractions for your patients, um, being able to um, kind of use the dynamical uh, movement system. Ooh, dynamical movement system. That dynamical? Be... <laughs> <laughs> Dynamic moving Diabolical. Diabolical. <laughs> Dynamic movement system. Yeah, what's I, a, what were the um, prongs of the trident? Do you remember? Um, the prongs of the trident were uh, distraction. Um, so being things like right. these things in the trident that you're adding to. Right. So like a like a like a somatosensory thing, like mess with their surface, and then like. Um, a distraction, something else they have to think about. And then like a cognitive task, like a choice, like something they have to do, um, like either reacting to an arbitrary stimulus, like red for right hand, green for left hand, or is it something um, like when you say right for right hand, that would be a less arbitrary one. And then um, reaction. So, you know, making a decision, but also like reactive things. So, so an example of this exercise that he gave, you're telling me about. Um... Yeah, super complex one. So the, they have the guy, he's an offensive lineman doing like a step back and he's got a band around his knee. So it's like basically banded hip extension. But, you know, to make this neuroplastic into um, maybe, maybe get some carryover into the field of play, um, he's in his like blocking stance, he's doing a step back. But he's also having to do a punch, and he's punching his right hand. If the if this ball lights up red, left hand. If it's green, both hands. If it's blue, and he has to react to that random stimulus with his upper body while continuing to do his step back activity. And then on top of that, they're also asking him to name fast food restaurants. So <laughs> distracting him. I don't know if that's a um, stereotype of offensive linemen that they like fast food restaurants, but. It's probably yeah, perpetrating, perpetrating a negative stereotype here. Maybe maybe they like to cook at home. Maybe the trident, the trident yeah. model. I have, I have to bring that to the clinic. A tool in the toolbox. And, yeah, yeah. And what? What? But and the trident model, cool. But what I really wanted to say about um, Dr. Larson there is that um, on his slide, he would show him using like a cool thing, like the vector ball that lights up in different colors when you do it. But he's like, but he also put pictures right next to it of like a wiffle ball that he had made different like color Sharpie marks on. 
and um, and with the stick that had different colors, we have to toss it and catch it. You know, like and has different colors, like the fancy one. He also had a PVC pipe that was wrapped in three different colors of tape. You know, it's like he showed my favorite thing, which is like the cheap version. Like, what could you do? Like, he had the shutter glasses, the ones that flick on and off. But then he also just showed a, a pair of goggles, clear goggles that he put strips of tape over, so it interferes with your visual um, stimulus. I'm like, that's awesome because oftentimes I think this very sciencey, very smart folk at CSM presenting um, talk about like, hey, you know, like you need to measure entropy of the knee extension mechanism in your ACLR patients, but you've got to have an isokinetic dynamometer for that. There's no clinical facsimile. There's no way that you can make that happen. Um, and that's all well and good, and that's great research, and we need it, but like me as the poor clinician, 2PT clinic, the string budget, <laughs> you know, buying buying that lemon-flavored TheraBand is kind of our the max, the max for us. Yeah, it's nice to have the clinic option for that, you know, more fancy tool. So I think the first um, talk that I went to when you were there was just about uh, ACL reconstruction and bridging the gap from rehab to sports performance. A rehash of a topic that's been brought up on probably every CSM I've been to, but I still enjoy it. And uh, really just focusing on the importance of strength and how if you improve the athlete's strength and specifically the quad strength a lot of these other higher level what we consider neuromuscular control or um, mechanical things uh, sort themselves out uh, they talked a lot about olympic lifts appropriate loading some of the anecdotes they talked about were you know an athlete that came in and their previous best deadlift was 900 pounds you know, what is a safe deadlift for them to begin with? Um, or, you know, a, an athlete who was squatting you know, 400 pounds before his ACLR, and, you know, first time he's in the squat rack three weeks after surgery, you know, is it safe or appropriate that they got him up to 225 pounds on his back on that first time? Um, and so there's some good discussions around that, but really the primary point being, Hey, we need to make sure that we're appropriately dosing exercise. And on that side, uh, typically, you know, the thought being, are, are we under underdosing for return to sport, which we've talked about a lot. Um, some of the fun little quotes I got from the talk were that, you know, if you're adding another tool to your toolbox, it better be heavy. And uh, the, you know, towels in our clinic should be, used uh, for patients to help uh, wipe off their perspiration and not just wipe off the tables. So you'd say there was good translation from research to practice. Yes. But not tibial translation. Not no, tibial translation. We're not, not anterior <laughs> tibial translation. We're, we're trying to prevent that from happening again. So yeah, the first, well, and that was actually, that's a good point because the first three presenters um, of the four were, yes, very, Clinical, the issue would be, I think in my clinic, I do have access to some heavy weights and barbells and boxes and those types of things, but not everybody has that. So that was something I think that in their presentation, they were really advocating for is that if you don't have 
the equipment to load your athletes, you're, you really cannot provide appropriate care. Uh, one of their questions, you know, as like, if you're an athlete or previous athlete, like, could you work out at your clinic? Uh, and there was, you know, kind of look around the room and there's people shaking their head yes, shaking their head no. Um, the fourth present presenter was just showing a lot of isokinetic data and it's some enforced plate stuff and it was cool but not translatable at all to my clinical practice uh, but kind of neat to see i'll take the other side do do i need to have my athletes loaded heavy at my clinic or can i teach them how to load heavy and let them go do that in the environment of their yeah, choice so that was that was the question and the uh i think barbell medicine is the the clinic um the answer came from he's like oh yeah no you can uh as long as they have a good lifting history, they know what they're doing. He's like, I Excel sheets and Google Docs. I write yeah. it out four weeks. They type in the stuff. They come back. We talk about it. We progress. So because if athletes uh, can do strength and conditioning with their team, isn't that better for them than doing yeah. it at my clinic? Yeah, and that was also a point of emphasis that they felt like as much as athletes can do with their team, you should have them doing with their team as much as they can participate in practice. They should be participating in practice around things to help maintain that uh, connection with their teammates and also the connection with their you know, identity as a basketball player, a football player, those types of things. Great, because I don't think my budget can handle getting multiple colors of rubber band. That would be too much. <laughs> Does Rogue Fitness sell rubber bands? <laughs> I don't know if they deal in rubber, only iron. Iron. Um the uh, knee platform, or the ortho platforms, but it was the yeah. knee. It was, it was all knee. <laughs> it was all knee. Um, was great. Um, I thought one of the uh, kind of eye-opener moments, we often talk about um, return to run in ACL, and we often talk about, you know, maybe four months being, or three to four months being a, you know, good timeline if you're just a, if you're not a criterion-based rehab provider. Um, Chris Powers looked at a uh, limb symmetry data on ground reaction force um, and, and correlated that with quad strength. And at, looking at six months after ACLR, found that uh, the cutoff to achieve 95% um, symmetry in ground reaction force was a quad index of 0.88, so 88%. And like, that's high. I feel like for six months, um, well, for four, for three months, that would be high. It's for, high at twelve weeks. And that was, I'll interject here, and you can continue on. Yeah. But that was one of the points that was brought up in the, the lecture about strength that I went to in the morning. It was like, why are you having your athlete run at twelve weeks when their strength isn't even close to what it needs to be to get them started? Or there's also some talk about like. The analogy of running as being um, like spinning a bike tire on uh, turning a bike upside down. It takes um, this initial power and strength to get the tire going where you grab it by, you know, grab the tire and you throw it. But then to keep it going, eventually you're just slapping it. Um, and the illustration with that is what how running works is that you need this initial strength and power phase to get yourself going. But then from a research perspective, once you're over 
this 12 to 16 mile an hour range, or you're thinking like a sprint, the actual amount of strength, quote unquote strength, that's used, um, especially from the quad and thing, is fairly minimal. It's just like basically a plyometric elastic um, activity where the Achilles complex and hip are actually doing almost all the work. Um, but you have to have this power and strength to get up to that point. So it's kind of interesting. In the power study, they weren't running nearly that that. They're running like six, seven miles an hour. So it's a little bit Right. Different. So that's my thing is like if they are uh, just going for a nice little jog, do you really need how much? Like that's always been my question is how much quad do you need to go for a light little jog on a level surface? Or like a treadmill, you know, because like the psychological and the cardiovascular benefits that getting people back to running um, after ACLR, like those are worth something. And if you can do it with limited limited risk of making their, you know, of obviously rupturing the graft or creating these abnormal running mechanics that then last for up to five years, supposedly, um, based on the previous literature that he cited. Like, yeah, I don't want to cause gait mechanic changes for the next five years for my patient just to get them running a couple months sooner. But if I can do that without, you know, I don't know. I want to get patients back to things as much as I can. I feel like it's in our profession. And I think it goes back again to... Another example from the first lecture when we're talking about somebody back squatting over, you know, 225 pounds four weeks after ACLR, the, it came down to the history of the patient, their training history, their previous strength and those types of things. So I think, I think that could be applied to running. You know, if you have somebody who never runs and has never has run, you know, maybe 12 weeks isn't the best time, but you have a, a runner, right, who like identifies that as part of their um, personal makeup and what they find important and what is important for them exercise wise and what helps their mental health, you know, as soon as they can get back to that with a good level of, you know, safety, I guess, and control, like, Hey, get them back to it. You know, that might be eight weeks. You know, it might be, it might be 20 weeks. So now obviously with the respect to the healing of the graft time, but it was nice to, Add a little nuance to that, really understanding your patient's history, their training history, and what their goals are, and tailoring our rehab progressions to those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other fun things you got from the platforms? There's a lot in that platform presentation. You Like, quick hitting. Yeah, no, um, definitely a lot. The uh, small sample, but... Uh, very generalizable group uh, for the patellofemoral pain, um, looking at trunk angles, and in the self-selected speed, at 80% of self-selected speed and 120% of self-selected speed, not seeing a difference between groups in the patellofemoral pain versus the healthy controls with the trunk, trunk angle. Like, yeah, yeah, so they, they had hypothesized that it would be different. Right. In the painful group, but it was not. It was not. So getting some negative research out there and publicized, right? Great. I feel like we're often 
uh, you know, worrying too much about, hey, we have to find something significant in order to get published, in order to make a splash, but saying like, hey, we looked for this and we didn't find it. Like, hey, great, that was that was helpful too. Um, it leads to a lot of other questions, like do, does trunk ankle change based on how painful patellofemoral pain is, or does it change at different stages in the recovery? Does it change with... Uh, Differences on the FABQ because we were the there was also a platform presentation looking at FABQ and patellofemoral pain and hopping mechanics. Right? Does FAB2 FABQ correlate with altered hopping mechanics in a single leg hop test? Right. And they also did a, a now, study on the FABQ. Yeah. Another presentation. It was like was oh, a valid and reliable measure. That was a. I feel like that was a. They had the same data set, and they're like, "All right, how can we get this two studies out of this data set? How can we get this re poor <laughs> resident to get his research requirement in over the year?" No, that was, that was good. But yeah, and also that was neat because like they were expecting to see uh, certain me altered mechanics, mechanics for in, uh, youth. It was a twelve youth. to seventeen. Yeah, so right. youth who had a higher fear. Yep. And they did not. Yeah, they and they even they even broke it up so it was they took out the moderate FABQ. I like that methodology. Mm -hmm. Like if we're gonna categorize somebody as fearful, then they they should not have a one you know like point break point where it's yeah, like so hey had, if you have a thirteen you're low fear if you have a fourteen you're high fear like so did they take out the so fourteen they, they was like took high out fear they took they out, out ten to fourteen to fourteen so yeah. if you were ten or lower you were low. 14 or higher, you were high. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, take out that, make a gap in the middle of your data set when you're trying to say, like, these people are high risk, so these people are low risk. Love that. Um, and then having the correlation data show what it did, it was like, all right, hey, you set this study up well, and it showed no change. And again, negative research, but I'm glad it's out there. Like, I don't need to be worried that 12 to 17 year olds that are fearful are likely to change how they do their landing and jumping based on that research. Yeah, that's good. Um, another one of the talks was about co-contraction of muscles uh, on the involved or uninvolved limb with ACLR, and if that was going to change gait mechanics and then possibly be a contributing factor to what, um, why maybe that it, people who have had an ACL reconstruction eventually developed OA more quickly. That one was a little bit difficult for me to honestly follow or figure out exactly what the thought was. They, from their EMG data, it looked like there was an increased co-contraction with the um, lateral muscles, basically, like so the vastus lateralis and the uh, lateral head of the gastroc that then was um, hypothesized, but increased load or like ultra mechanics on the me medial um, yeah. compartment that would then maybe move into yeah, the were... so it, was, it was an exploratory study and it was like it was a lot of like this is maybe what we see and then maybe it affects this maybe it affects that I thought the question from the audience was actually fairly insightful because um, he thought he his question was like you know I would have thought that like they would load less on the involved limb you know mm. like trying to offload it um i don't think the speaker understood that question really so there wasn't a good um maybe back and forth answer and honestly i think part of it was language barriers between both the speaker and the question asker but 
just interesting to see there is some other, you know, like muscular things going on. And they were looking at it not from a sports performance uh, perspective, which is most of the ACL talks I've been to is looking at that, return to sport. Yeah. And this was more um, how do we maybe prevent or um, delay, right, the onset of knee OA in people who've had ACLR. Yeah, I feel like that was a, a question that needed some alternative hypotheses too because there are so many other factors other than like co-contraction during gait, you know, like, because the one thing that I've always heard is that like you are, you're doing an invasive surgery to the knee joint, right? So any kind of invasive knee surgery to the knee joint, whether it be ACL repair, whether it be meniscus repair, like any kind of surgery increases your likelihood of getting early onset of OA because something about causing that you know, infiltrating into the joint to do an invasive surgery just increases your risk of OA later in life or earlier than most people. But like, so like there are some factors of just having surgery and, you know, so it's like, okay, maybe there are some altered mechanics there too. And like, Hey, that, those are great things. We need to look at all avenues and see like what stands out the most, maybe what's modifiable too. Yeah. Uh, well, and the other one you already alluded to, but they did had, took some isokinetic data and put it through an alternate computer program that basically looked at entropy. Um, so the complexity and variation of the arc, right, I guess, of the isokinetic force generation. Oof. And... It was very. It was it put, dense. It put me to sleep the yeah. first time, and you're putting me to sleep again now with a recap so, of that. So the part that was interesting to me in in the um, like my my dumbed down version of it was that they saw that entropy, so the complexity of the like variation decreased in the surgical leg. Um, on some points, but then... You can't handle variability. Variability, but it's like, can you not handle or you can't create variability, right? That's what I like, and that's why I didn't understand, honestly, just I, I don't have a good grasp on the Susan my, model. I, my eyelids were doing, doing isometric contractions. Yeah, I just think like in a functional standpoint, like I think you want to be able to obviously handle variability, but then at the other time, I feel like as clinicians, a lot of times we're trying to coach people into quote unquote better movement patterns that aren't like all over the place yeah. aberrant things you know so I'm like I'm thinking like more entropy is bad but in this case it seemed like they're saying more entropy gotta, might be healthy and you gotta I have the right amount yeah. so um speaking of variability and loading where is that good for us in our last talk that we too. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Bone health, bone health. Yes. Adolescents when they are specializing so, as runners, as runners, yeah. And yeah. That, that I thought that was great, and it's something I don't know how. Like we talked about it after, I don't know how. I've, how have I never heard this before? That like ball sport participation is just like so good. Decreases for, likelihood of bone mineral density loss in adolescents and yeah, bone sure. stress injury. Yeah. So play soccer, play basketball, play lacrosse. Yeah. It seems to be this like lateral forward back acceleration deceleration is just so good for bone health whereas running doesn't have that same effect 
is unfortunately not osteogenic. <laughs> but the fact that a strength training, like a resistance training program, decreases risk of bone stress injury in swimmers, in cyclers, in runners, but not in soccer players. Because yeah. the added strength training doesn't give them any more benefit to their bone than the sport does. Yeah. Like, that was awesome information. And uh, I've always been a big fan of Cincinnati Children's Hospital presenters. And, uh, yeah, they always got something good. <laughs> yeah, and what was the um, our, the biggest force-generating exercise? The 180? What did they the call it? The 180-degree jumps. So the athlete was jumping from two feet on the ground all the way into 180 degrees around before landing and it was generating up to seven times their body weight like yeah and like, so i can't remember off the top of my head but they did a good job of progressing from like one mm -hmm. of your body weight like a body weight squat right to then a kind of hop and going from a one step to a two ups, to three step and, up yeah, yeah stuff like that walking at 1.3 yeah so and it would be a way if somebody came to your clinic or a adolescent or even um, I think it looked like you could translate it into um, the adult population as well with a bone stress injury how could you progress those forces to then um, help decrease that in the future that it was, yeah. it was good I would I mean obviously the population was biased towards younger but I would love to know what kind of a translatability we can have for the middle-aged adult that's worried about that tip down as bone mineral density starts to decrease post-menopause. Um, yeah. We talked a lot about, they talk a lot about puberty and onset of um, some, like a female's first period and those types of things. And I think there's some good uh, parallels too between that age and then also like yeah menopause and things like that when they start went into um appropriate nutrition and calories and those types of things and the are you appropriately fueling your body for the activities you're doing uh, i think that's a uh, once again brings us back to our nutrition talk from yesterday yeah so we had uh we had some barbecue some beans and some coleslaw to that appropriately fuel us for uh podcasting <laughs> podcasting i think it was the whiskey in addition to that that helped us um maybe right now and i ate some m&ms too which would explain my rye wit <laughs> <laughs> so no that was good the we're, we had barbecue tonight it was okay um we got you some, can't you can't say that in texas that's it well we got tips on a um supposedly the best barbecue that a friend of ours has ever had, and she goes and gets barbecue at every new Everywhere city she, she goes. Is. And she said they had the best pulled pork she had ever had. So that might be on our agenda tomorrow night as well. Mm -hmm. Any other hot takes from tonight? Uh, Indiana University alumni event, best alumni event every year. See this? <laughs> it's so good. It's always good to see uh, those familiar faces. And yeah, it brings back good memories, really. Oh, the best memories. Yeah. So we, yeah, uh, we being, hit. being broke, <laughs> clueless, <laughs> clueless, and stressed. <laughs> and stressed. <laughs> so good. So good. So good. Um, so yeah, we, that was, that was good as well. Got to see some of our previous faculty. Got to, uh, 
see a couple uh, students that we, I guess we still are in touch. Fellow alumni. Yeah, we're like in there still, yeah, five years, um, five years later. So it was good. It was a good day. Anything else to add today, Andy, for our listeners out there waiting with bated breath for a hot takes round two? Oh, we'll get this thing published as soon as uh, as soon as we can, and uh, we're excited for uh, day three. Make sure to be uh, looking out for Matt and I out there. We will probably be in ortho or sports. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not gonna find us in a neuro lecture. Probably we're we don't we don't have the brain power for that. Don't have the brain power. We do have stickers though, and I will say my my, my heart goes out to the cardiovascular section. I really oh. you know, I do wish them their best. Uh, oh, we did make it through the entire exhibit holiday. We did not eat lunch. We talked about that yesterday. We decided to go back to the old ways and not eat lunch, um, eat some snacks, make it through the exhibit hall. Um, yeah, I'm not made some friends, picked up some new toys. Didn't yeah. pick up a sponsor yet. So. No sponsors. We're still open. If anybody else still wants open, to yeah. have a um, sp- uh, name drop, yet. we accidentally, I guess. <laughs> said some names like so what happens doing this live yeah so anybody's name that we said you know we're not endorsing your products at all so. <laughs> but no so uh we don't have anything to do in the exhibit hall tomorrow so i think we're going to go back to eating food again Ooh. right so thanks for uh tuning in today we yeah. hope you enjoyed it and uh remember when it comes to uh physical therapy it's okay to be on the fence